Hi, my name is Nathan Cook and you're listening to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This small show is designed for academics to put their research interests in the spotlight. Please sit, learn and enjoy a cuppa while we do too. Hello and welcome to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This episode's researcher is Melissa Hattie and Cup of Coffee is once again brought to you at home. I'm having actually today another episode where it's late afternoon. I'm having a Madura English breakfast tea, uh, just black for me. What are you drinking, Melissa? I am having a Madura tea, but Earl Grey. Oh, nice. Any milk or just plain? Rice milk. Oh, cool. Cool. I haven't heard of rice milk before. That's an interesting one. It's got a lovely bit of sweetness to it that kind of brings out the, the Earl Grey flavour. That's interesting because I know that people like, you know, they focus their their milk alternatives on their coffee, but I've never heard it with milk, so to change the, the taste um, for the tea. Yeah, it's good. Tasty. Now, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon, Melissa. I really do appreciate it. It's been a while. It's been we're trying to get this uh, get going on, but I just want to ask you first, what's your area of research? Uh, my PhD was about connection with nature, so uh, human relationships with the natural world and how to kind of understand the different types of relationships and how to nurture those relationships. And so I've been reading this in you know, the last couple of days preparing for today, and I think it's so such a really cool area. And obviously your background is, um, for those who don't know, psychology. So did you focus this research on what people think and feel while they're in nature? Sort of. Um, my PhD was, topic was given to me. So my PhD was a partnership with the Victorian state government, the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. And they uh, released a biodiversity strategy a few years ago that one of the core goals of that was what they call Victorians valuing nature. And the idea that if we get people to connect with nature, they will do more to protect nature. So um, the topic was of interest to me because I'm love the natural world and I've always been interested in that area um, and so I decided to focus in specifically on the uh, connection with nature side of things. Um, wow that's so interesting because mm-hmm. I because I I've been given my PhD or I applied for my PhD topic which was advertised as well so um, it's a bit I think it's um it's a privilege but it's also it's like especially with you with your group partnership you have to you kind of have some big big dogs to report to I would imagine. It, it was actually, it actually worked out really nicely because I first started thinking about doing a PhD about 12 years ago um, around, there was a conference in Melbourne called Healthy Parks, Healthy People back in 2010. And I went along as a researcher in a different context, but um, uh, was the happiest little pig in mud for five days, listening to all of these talks about how nature is good for us. Nature is great for psychological well-being, physical well-being. So I've always been interested in this idea of nurturing relationships with nature. Um, and when this topic came up, I thought, wow, the state government's actually getting into this idea of, you know, it's not just about, oh, we need to protect X, Y, Z species. We also need to get people involved, um, and nurture those relationships. So yeah, it was, it was quite fortuitous in the way that it worked out, but the people that I worked with at Delp are absolutely lovely and so passionate about this topic. So it was actually a pretty straightforward, gentle process for me. That's true. And especially like it's a nice topic as well. It's not like you're into, you know, you're not um, trying to understand disease or you're, you're not interviewing cancer patients or like, you know, it's not like you're fighting. You just want to say, hey, look how good this stuff is. Let's protect it. And it's really interesting when you talk to people and say, hey, you know how when you go outside and you spend time in nature, you go for a walk in the park, you know how you feel better? And they go, yeah. And it's like, 
do more of that. It's good for you. And, and it also makes you also makes you more environmentally conscious and makes you do more to protect nature. So I was going to say, it makes you know, um, there could be one day where you're not allowed to do that or because you'll get so sunburnt or you'll get, you know, you could be attacked by a lion or something. So, you know, extreme <laughs> examples, but, you know, like you said, protect it so that you can still continue to do that. Like like Absolutely. me living on the Gold Coast, like everyone loves the beach, right? But imagine yeah. if it wasn't there, like we wouldn't be the Gold Coast. Like we'd, it would just be different if we couldn't swim in the ocean or lay on the beach. Um or walk down to the cafe, it would be a different whole, you know, everyone's lifestyle would completely change. Well, and this is the interesting thing. I mean, particularly with so many of us living in cities now, um, we live in little concrete boxes. We sort of forget that we're actually of nature. We evolved in nature. We we kind of, you know, when we were cavemen and women, this is we, we interacted with nature. That's what we did. And we've become so kind of separated from those natural processes that we've almost forgotten how important nature is in our lives. And so my research, I, we talk about connection with nature, but for me, it's reconnection, um, you know, because we never really became unconnected. We just kind of forgot. Mm. So I'm reminding people that, hey, nature's actually kind of cool. And it's just there as well. Like I we was saying before about looking out the window, you know, the sun yeah. bearing in, it's like, it's always knocking on your door. Like you feel the wind or you hear the birds or, um, you know, even when you run on the trails or something and you can feel the, like the dirt and the rocks and you hear that, that gravelly sound on your feet and it's like, oh, this is all like, you know, you feel that connection, I, or personally I do, when yeah. swimming in the ocean or, or doing that those types of activities. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and just that sense of you can kind of lose yourself in, in when you're out in nature, particularly if you're in the kind of a foresty sort of space where, you know, an urban park where there's maybe one tree, it's a bit harder, but um, when you're kind of out in the kind of wilder spaces like beaches or... or you know, forest or something, um, to completely lose yourself in the in the sounds and the smells and the and the textures and the and just being, you know, being in that space and how relaxing it is to be in that space. Yeah, I noticed that when I do my my runs, like I I don't take headphones or anything, and I just you know listen to my breathing or whatever. But I can't I can't actually think about anything. I'm just like mm. running, and it's like a it's like mm. my mind just stops. Um, and it's not that I want it to or anything. I just like there's just no. It's just like one foot in front of the other and you're just like looking around like you're five years old trying to explore it's um it's a very nice experience yeah absolutely absolutely but of course it's interesting because there's some people that are quite afraid of nature so we often talk about connecting with nature being a positive thing but for a lot of people it's not you know the idea of going out into a, a i suppose a wilderness using that term very loosely um is quite scary for a lot of people so it's it's interesting the kind of different um thoughts and experiences that nature brings up for us but it, like, it's funny you say that because like it also is dangerous, you know. Like, like mm-hmm. when we go to the beach, there's like there's beach snakes or there's sharks yeah. or jellyfish or um, I was going to say dragons, but that's not quite the appropriate word. Uh, but you know, even at the, at the you know if you go rock climbing or something, you can fall off and hurt yourself. Or so there yeah. is reasons to be you know fearful, but maybe not like scared. Yeah. And interesting that, that, you know, Australia has got, what, nine of the ten deadliest snakes in the world. So, and the and the snake season is now six months of the year, if not longer. So even, I've got a creek down the back of my place and there's snakes come in my backyard. Um, and, yeah, there are certain months of the year I'm like, mm, you're outside, there's snakes. <laughs> Careful while you're mowing the lawn, yeah. That's it, that's it. But it's all, that's, you know, it's all part of the system. Respect, I think. Respect for nature is the important part. That's a very important component, I think, as well as like, you know, if I see rubbish, I'll pick it up or if, you know, I don't litter in the first place or, you know, choosing like the 
you know, sustainable habits like choosing your bike and stuff. It's not, this is harder for me. It's more so it's better for nature. Like it's, don't take it on as a burden for yourself, but like you're helping, you know, for something mm. that can't help itself. Like um, it's an important part that we all play, I think. Mm-hmm. And so could you please tell us through your research pathway from beginning until now? So you did also mention you had a bit of other research experience when you were at that Parks conference. Yeah, um, I, oh gosh, my research journey started a long time ago, back in the early 2000s. Um, I did my undergrad, um, I didn't actually know what I wanted to do, so I looked at the book and kind of closed my eyes and wiggled my finger and went, that'll do. Um, applied for uh, art science double degree um, and did psychology in my first year as my science major. Um, hated it, hated it with a passion. But the idea of going back and repeating first year to have a new major made my skin crawl. <laughs> so I kept going. <laughs> so uh, never intended to do psychology. Don't really know how I ended up here. Became a psychologist, took a left turn at Albuquerque, went, I'm not really sure how that happened. <laughs> um, interesting interesting journey um the one part of psychology i did enjoy was uh stats i've always been really good at statistics and um, the research side of it in in the world of psychology we talk about uh, the scientist practitioner model and how you're both the scientist and do research as well as a, a practitioner that applies the research and most psychologists registered psychologists tend to do kind of one or the other um i i love both i love kind of sitting on the on the fence between the two um, my other degree um, was in anthropology, so it was a really lovely way of kind of blending the, I guess, the more scientific, um, empirical perspective of psychology with the more qualitative approach that you see with anthropology. And I was really interested in the kind of hometown anthropology. So we often think of anthropologists as going off and sitting in, you know, studying remote tribes and that kind of stuff. Um, but it's a, it equally applies to kind of Western industrialized societies as well. My, uh, my major project for my, um, my anthropology major was uh, a karaoke bar in the middle of Melbourne. <laughs> I sat there, I was working there at the time, and I went down and for three or four months uh, watched these group of regulars who would come in every Friday night and wrote my project about my mates singing karaoke, so that was hilarious. Um, That's so cool. It was actually really interesting. And then... Uh, I got into, I wanted to do a master's. Um, I've always been interested in the environment. And when I went to do postgrad psychology, um, to become a, a registered psychologist in Australia, there's not, it's not recognised, uh, environmental psychology is not recognised as a branch of psychology. Um, it is in sort of academic settings, but not in clinical settings. So I uh, did health psychology because it was the closest thing. Um, so I ended up in Brisbane became a psychologist, learnt how to sit in front of people doing therapy, went, what the hell am I doing? I'm not sure I want to do this. All right, I'm here now. Kind of that sunk cost bias, I'll keep going. Um, it's good. So that's my other career. I do research part-time, I do psychology part-time. Um, I supervise students part-time, new psychologists. And it's a lovely kind of compliment. So a um, little bit of this, a little bit of that all within the kind of underlying focus of nature and, and environmental kind of stuff. I talk to my clients a lot about getting out into nature. And if they're depressed or down or stressed, we talk about, right, okay, where's the nearest park? How are you going to go and sit, read, meditate, walk, plant a tree? Mm. It's good. It's good for them. 
Yeah, I've I've had um, like psychologists uh, in the past, um, and I, I have a, a certain one that I like to see. Uh, and I did reach out because I couldn't get on to him to an EAP, like a through Monash. And mm-hmm. um, one of their str- you know, suggestions was like, you know, go for a walk twenty minutes, and like it was like hear four things, touch three things, yep. um, smell two things, and saying one other thing. And I was like, wow, it was just like without even like you know going out and doing those things. It like brings you back just like to the exact moment, like where you are. Like I'm very, you know, PhD lands very left, right and centre all day. Um, thinking back what you used to do, what am I going to do next? And you rarely think about what you're doing at the time. Um, so it's an amazing strategy that I, I've, you know, now got to bring myself to the present moment is like do those things. Um, 100%. Especially yeah. outside. Yeah. Yep. And when the weather's, I mean, it's a bit harder when the weather's a bit crap, but when the weather's beautiful and you can get out and enjoy some sunshine, you know, actually just being there and, and having that sort of therapeutic space of being in nature is just amazing. But also, like, you know, you say that and, like, this is not to, like, contrary or anything, but, like, getting out in the rain as well. Like, like, so, like, like, like running, it's like, oh, well, it could rain on race day, so you need to practice running in the rain. Yep. And, and so, like, practice being in a windy, <laughs> crappy um, you know, not a storm, like be safe about it, but like, you know, run in puddles and stuff like that to know what it feels like. And that's like, makes it like, you feel like a kid again. And it's kind of like, you're like, it's okay to get wet. Like. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm the same. I had a conversation with someone recently about gardening. I'm a very keen gardener and, and we were talking about gardening in the rain and he said, well, you know, the one advantage of that is you don't have to water the plants cause you know, you stick it in the ground and then it's raining. So it's watering the plants for you. So <laughs> good strategy it's like well you know they all the trees and the animals they all have to bear it out there while we're indoors it's like we can you know we used to why don't you give a crack safely like yeah but also it depends how cold it is if it's you know close to yeah that's right in melbourne it's a bit different i'd imagine yeah (laughs) it's a bit cold yeah and so what happened next so you're doing psychology you're doing you finish your master's and then phd time Yes. So, yes, did the Masters, um, took a couple of years off, took about five or six years and um, was actually working as a psychologist in a hospital when I came across the, the GRIP. So my, my program at Monash was a graduate research industry partnership and it was all about um, training PhDs to become more industry ready. So actually gaining opportunity to have internships to actually work with government or private industry on a real world problem. And uh, so my PhD was was one of those. And I was, I'll never forget, I was standing in the hospital on my lunch break um, and I came across the ad for the grip and I read the project about working with Delp on connection with nature. And my heart skipped a beat. I was so excited because I'd been looking for for a project like that for a long time. Um, I'd sort of had applied for PhDs at different points along the journey and then various things happened. They never kind of came to be, but always with the flavour of, something to do with nature something to do with nature is good for you is good for health um so when this came up it was just oh okay great um applied had the interview got the phone call was quite excited um so i i did a phd because it was on my bucket list not because i wanted to further my career um i've always loved education i've always loved learning and so it was like oh okay next thing so ask me what I want to do with the rest of my career. Don't know. Just thinking about doing another PhD. I can really resonate you with this <laughs> whole experience of like the way that that last question, because I just like I when I 
I did not seek to do a PhD. I was seek to reduce food waste. And then, yes. the, and it's like, well, I have a background as a dietitian, and this project came up, and I was like, well, that's got, like, my name's written on that. Like, yeah. that's for me, and that's you know, that's why I'm here because I demonstrated that passion in the interview and and had those skills to apply that. And but I was not doing it to you know, um, get the letters after my name or to. I was just like, it's about the problem, you know. Mm, it's about it's also about learning because now I'm two and a half years in. I'm like, oh, should I do it? What am I going to do at the end? Should I do an MBA? Should I do my? I'm like, stop. Like, just slow down. Like, you know, like what's next? Um, I think it's a. It must be like a a trait of some people that just want to know what's next. Um, but so that's really nice to hear someone else say what I feel. <laughs> it's really interesting. There was a, there was a Ted talk many years ago. Emily Wapnick talks about, um, her Ted talk is called why some of us don't have one true calling. And the idea is, you know, we're told when we're kids, you know, pick a career path and go to uni and do the thing and then do the job and that's your career. But her argument is some of us don't have that. You know, some of us are, are interested in lots of things. And it's a little bit like, you know, you go down a path for a little while and go, that's great. And now I'm going to move to a different path. I'll go down here for a while. That's great. And then I'm going to move again and do something else. And her idea of a multi-potential life is multiple, exactly that, multiple potentials. Um, and it's something I, it's a badge that I kind of stick on myself and wear with pride because I've worked in so many different industries and so many different places. Um because I'm, I'm passionate about how these things fit together. So there's the world of psychology and then there's the world of research and then I worked in IT for a while and how do these things kind of blend together? You know, how can I bring together therapy in nature with a hospital setting with, I worked in chronic pain for a while, you know, all of this stuff where my brain is constantly looking for the next thing, the next bit of information. And you're using it now, you know, like what you said with your clients before, like it's like you're using what yeah. you've done or learnt in your PhD with, you know, your um, your psychology clients and that you can demonstrate, you know, not that you're going to take stats on them, but that they can benefit from this, you know, because you just anecdotally they report that or you know that they're doing better or so. Mm, mm. So the next thing might be, I don't know, I did a course and I did a, a, a day of um, forest therapy recently um in japan shinrin yoku oh wow if i pronounced that correctly uh forest forest bathing and the idea is you kind of you know you go into nature and you and you use uh, nature as that therapeutic space and so it was all about focusing on the different smells and going through and wandering through uh the botanical gardens in melbourne and touching things and smelling things and they took us to the herb garden and they would encourage us to kind of rub our hands on the leaves and smell the um smell the different scents and it was fantastic um and i got chatting to the people that, that hosted the day and thought oh i should do that i should do some training in that and become a, a forest therapy guide blend it with all of my other stuff yeah one day part-time seven different jobs it's the way to go i reckon that's it <laughs> today i'm an anthropologist today i'm it helping out someone today i'm a psychologist today i'm an yeah. environmentalist like it's yeah. i i i can't resonate with you um enough because I, I have the same problems <laughs> not problems um i guess you know diversification or multi-potential i think so i like that i'm gonna look that up that's great yeah do do being excited by the world being excited by by all the different things that come up and so what do the phd look like is it standard like um i guess uh you know review and then two studies or was it a bit different with the grip program mm. It was fairly standard. I did it by publication, so I had three publications. Um, I was very much guided by what Delp wanted. So one of the things that they came up with was they wanted to 
uh, measure connection with nature um, in a way that they could use across all of their programs. And the the way connection with nature is um, described in the literature, there's a few different sort of approaches, but some people talk about it as a cognitive construct. So it's about what I think about nature, my thoughts and beliefs and attitudes. And some people say it's a, an emotional experience. Um, so it's about that feeling of awe and wonder, that sort of bonding, that emotional kind of connection. Um, some people talk about actually spending time in nature. So, you know, the physical experiences of wanting to be out hiking, camping, fishing, that kind of stuff. And so part of what I looked at was um, there was a new paper that came out I mean, a couple of years ago. Chris Ives and his team did a big review of the connection with nature literature, and they came up with five different types of connection, five different dimensions. So cognitive, emotional, experiential were three, and he also talked about material and um, philosophical. And so I was given a database um, and tried to find a, tried to develop a connection with nature instrument that would capture those different types. Um, so my first paper was actually a, a psychometric instrument. It was a 12 questionnaire, um, a 12 question questionnaire to measure connection with nature, um, which Delp are now using, which is nice. Um, so that was the first part. The second part was my supervisors told me that, you know, the first study leads to the second study and then that raises questions, which leads to the third study. I just kind of went, I want to do all of the things. <laughs> <laughs> all of the things. So mine didn't really flow. I had to make it flow. Uh, but that's right. It worked. Um, yeah, you got the skills to write the narrative in there somewhere. And connect the story later, yeah. Uh, so there was a bit of retrofitting in, in my, my bigger story. Um the second paper, I was really interested in, again, another uh, Chris Ives' paper that I read talked about when we talk about connection with nature, most papers don't define what nature is. So it's great to say connecting with nature, but you ask a person what is nature and you get so many different answers. So my idea was um, well, how, how can we kind of get people to describe their, their nature, what, what does nature mean to them, and then how does this relate to their connection? So there was a survey question that we asked, um, what comes to mind when you think about nature? And some people wrote things like tree, animal, forest, beach, the kind of labels, descriptions. Um, some people wrote um, more experiences. So they talked about bushwalking or camping or gardening or hiking, or they talked about beauty and awe and wonder and those kind of emotional experiences. Um, some people talked about, um, what else was there? In needing protection. So nature is fragile, nature is precious. Um, it's kind of the life system, life support. And then there were some people that talked about all of those things or, or different combinations of those things. And so I ran some analysis, I did some multidimensional scaling and came up with um, these different kind of clusters of, of how people think about nature and then looked at how that related to connection. Um, and people that described nature in terms of labels, so descriptive concepts of nature, these descriptive words, they tended to have a much lower connection than nature score. Um, whereas people who were talked about it in terms of emotions or experiences or spending time in nature or in the kind of more complex, richer kind of terms had a much higher connection, which got me thinking there must be something about people who think about nature in this way. How does that influence their relationship with it? Um, so that was the second paper. That was really interesting. And the third paper has uh, been back and forward from review. It still hasn't been published, but it's in process, was um, looking at um, 
how does so connection with nature is considered one type of it is considered a relatively stable trait so it doesn't really change over the lifespan that much and so we looked at over a 12-month period if people spent more or less time in nature did that have any more influence on whether their connection with nature score increased or decreased at the end of the 12-month period um and interestingly um it did for people that sort of went to wilderness areas, so people national parks and that kind of stuff. But interestingly, even urban parks, so people that spent more time in urban parks, maybe just playing with their kids, you know, on the um, on the playground equipment, had higher connection scores. So it was kind of three standalone studies that didn't really flow, but I kind of made them flow. That's amazing. Thanks for explaining all that. And it's so cool to see that you're uh... – you know, your tool or your questionnaire is being used like in practice. Like that's like mm. a major mm. thing. Like a lot of research is either either published and not cited or published and not used and you never know. But it's cool to hear that, you know, like especially with the GRIP program that, you know, they're actually using your findings and like, their money's been well spent. And, and like even yourself, you could possibly use your tool, you know, in practice with mm. a new client. You don't know, like, do you have a connection with nature? Oh, they scored really low. Well, let's put in some strategies to get out in nature. Mm. Maybe that will make you happy or, you know, supervise your grief process or that's amazing. And that's the beautiful part about being part of a group because it was a, a real world, you know, driven by policy, driven by an actual need of the government. Um, it was all about, well, we're going to do this research and then how are we going to use the findings? Um, and even now there's a, a lot of work kind of ongoing the stuff that I started has sort of been picked up and, and expanded even further from that Victorian value nature space um, to try to understand connection more, to try to get more people to be doing things to help protect nature, what are called biodiversity behaviours, conservation behaviours. Um, so, yeah, it's very cool to be seeing it used. And so the people who uh, explained are, are more... Uh, so you said, uh, like not complex, but more like... If they explained that they had a high connection to nature, that correlated with their score? People who, when we ask them what comes to mind when you think about nature, so people who sort of think about nature purely as a, um, as a label, like mm. it's an animal or a tree, their scores, were, their connection with nature scores were quite low. Mm. Whereas some people wrote really big, complex descriptions. So they talked about, oh, when I go out into the beautiful green of the camping and the hiking and I've got this backyard and garden and it's magical and I watch a sunset and it's beautiful and I go, wow. So people that kind of had that really richer description had a higher connection with nature school. I really like, you know, that even helps me kind of visualising like what nature is. Like when you say like the, you always like make a scale and that's obviously the, their score is their scale, you know, level mm. or their, where they fit in on the scale, like, you know, nature is a tree to me or it's like well hang on like the sun moving in the sky i wouldn't actually think that's nature but it is like it's even though it's not green or blue you know the things that we resonate with it's something that's happening that can be classed as you know in that definition of nature that just kind of happens around us outside like Mm. and what i found really interesting a lot of the literature when i went to do the lit review for the for the paper um a lot of our past experience shapes how we think about nature and the way that we kind of describe it and so there were some examples of, um, I think it was a South African study of uh, kids thought of, or teenagers thought nature was dangerous because that's where bad stuff happens. You know, people go into the forest and get raped or mugged or, or beaten. 
Um, whereas for some people, you know, if you sit by the beach like yourself and you're able to get out and go for a swim every day, that's got a more kind of positive tone to mm. it. Mm. Um, that experience of being able to get out and exercise in nature has a real influence on how you think about nature. Um, yeah, I mean, even from, like, sorry, keep going. Oh, just someone that might have grown up in the in a concrete jungle, you know, in a, in a really high rise, like somewhere like Hong Kong, for example. Very different idea about what nature is. They might be more uh, inclined to say, oh, that single tree over there is nature, whereas someone who grew up in a rural area might go, that's not nature, that's a tree. And then you can even, I just was imagining, you know, my friend Callum who works on a cattle farm in Casino, mm. and he's like, he would maybe associate nature with work. Yes. And it's like, well, that's, you know, I don't want to go outside because it's, it's work or I don't want to go in nature because it's, you know, you have that feeling of, you're, it's like when you go into the office at home and you, you don't want to be in there on the weekend because it's the yep. office. It's like associating that experience or that place with something and it's interesting you say that there was a study that came out, I can't remember where, where it was published, but um, looking at kids and kids that grew up on farms or, or exactly that, that were, that were required to be in nature to work, had a very different view of what nature is than someone who grew up in you know, an urban area or a city, um, purely because of what actually happens when you're in nature. And so you did say that the work is still continuing and, and you mentioned a little bit about that with like what's... I guess, what's that, what are they exploring next? But what are you currently working on now that you've, you know, Dr. Hattie? <laughs> that still sounds really foreign. <laughs> <laughs> um, what am I working on other than pottering around in my garden? Um, Research-wise, I'm working at BehaviourWorks now. So I've got, I'm in the environment portfolio mostly. I've got a little bit of health work going on as well. But, um, so I'm kind of just doing that. I have grand plans. I've spoken with a couple of researchers about continuing the connection with nature work, um, but it's about finding time and energy to kind of do it. Mm. Passion, passion's there. It's just the time and energy that's not. Um, what am I working on? Oh, I have just done a really interesting study, which is actually not to do with nature or environment, but um, looking at uh, using psychedelic drugs to treat mental illness. Mm. Um, there's a whole bunch of really interesting research coming in now looking at um, different psychedelics to treat things like PTSD and treatment-resistant depression. And I've just been involved with a, a study looking at public perceptions, trying to understand are the public willing and able and happy to support psychedelic use for treatment of mental illness. So that survey's in the field at the moment, so I can't tell you what the results are. I don't know. Mm. Um, fascinating work, though. And is that, like, is that like continuous microdosing or more so here's... Here's your 30 capsules, like one cycle, and then see if you've improved. How it actually works, there's a few different ideas, but with something like um, uh, like a PTSD or trauma experience, part of the problem, I put my psychologist hat on for a second, part mm. of the problem with trauma is, is being a, reliving that experience and bringing that memory back up again is so distressing. Um, typically an approach we use is kind of a, a greater desensitization. So we would kind of very gradually teach the person a relaxation type strategy and then we would expose them to the thing that makes them fearful and then kind of gradually ramp it up and expose them that way. It's one, one approach. Um, what the idea behind the psychedelics is that it opens up the brain to experiences. So it opens up the brain to kind of um, be more willing and more able to kind of uh, experience the trauma, I guess. And so how it works is um, it's usually over two or three sessions and they're eight-hour sessions. 
um, two therapists. So it's usually a psychiatrist or a couple of psychiatrists or a psychologist. And you get the dose uh, in the morning and then the therapists uh, work the person through that experience of, of living through the trauma and then come back in between, um, have the kind of integration session, the kind of um, integration of the, of the experience and then quite often they'll do it again, maybe two or three times. Um, and that then allows the person to kind of relive that experience to help overcome the trauma. So it's kind of like, like I know it's a, my partner works, she's doing a master's now in psychology and she'd mm-hmm. hate me saying this and you probably are the same, but like, like flushing it out. It's a kind of like flushing, the, not the experience out, but like I guess flushing the emotion out. So if they have it again, does that mean that they, not the psychedelic, but the, the, if they're exposed to the trauma or think about the trauma, are they not going to react as, yeah. or feel as bad or, yeah. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Um, the idea with trauma is is um, the limbic system and the, and the amygdala in the brain is kind of there to constantly look for danger. Mm. And when you've had a major trauma, like a witness to violent abuse or, mm. or you know a car accident or something um the brain becomes incredibly hyper vigilant and the trauma response gets triggered very very quickly and so reliving that emotion they often talk about um nightmares and um you know, hyper vigilance and that kind of stuff with the trauma so it's less about i guess flushing out the emotion and more about enabling the brain to recognize that i can experience this memory but I don't have to completely freak out by it. Yeah, okay. That um, explains it's, it. It's like sort of a desensitizing. Yeah, idea. yeah, wow. That's amazing. Mm. That's a very – lots of people talk about it. Like, you know, over over time I've heard, you know, that type of, I guess, um, treatment being used for that type of um, – not illness, but that type of – what would you call – what do you call it? Well, it is. It's a, you know, PTSD is a mental illness. It's a psychological diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. They're also looking at it. There's also evidence for it with um, eating disorders and uh, treatment-resistant depression. Um, So, and I think there's some work being done in um, other anxiety disorders as well. But it's, yeah, it's a fascinating space. And so pretty novel in Australia. Hey, like this is all happening in the Europe and U.S., It's quite novel across the world. So, I mean, psychedelics were sort of discovered in the 1950s, um, but they're still not legal Mm. in Australia. Um, But they're doing uh, this kind of randomised controlled trials now to get this information to try to um, get the support, get the medical support, because we haven't had a lot of um, advances, rapid advances in in treatment of mental illnesses for many decades. So Mm. this is quite exciting exciting work and so did you work on that through msdi or is it through someone's approached you or through behavior works yeah so um because they're wanting to find out about public perceptions we were putting a survey together to kind of get a baseline measure about do people accept it or not um and my uh my experience as a psychologist was really helpful in in being able to put those questions together because i could understand you know the, the basic process of how these Treatments work, different types of treatments. Um, and the stats to... behind the survey too. You know, that's all yeah. psychology, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to so interrupt, was... were you going to say something? Oh, no, that, that was just one one project. It's sort of an ongoing um, bit of research. The others, most of the work I do with Behaviour Works is in the environment space. So looking at, 
we just finished up a project looking at connecting people with waterways, um, getting them, again, very similar to my PhD, getting people involved in conservation type stuff of waterways around Melbourne. Um, those kinds of things. And I did read on your, one of your profiles that you have a pet peeve for shit surveys. I do, hate them. So did you look at those questions quite closely? When I developed the psychedelic survey? Uh, yeah, yeah. I wrote the survey, so yeah. they weren't shit. <laughs> I love that. that. That's such a good confidence, though. Not, not shit, done by me. I'll take it if it is, but I know it's not, so stuff you. <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Yeah. No, well, you know, surveys are an art. There's a there's an art and a science to them, and a lot of people think that they can just chuck a couple of questions on a page and you'll get survey questions, and you, it's not how it works. Yeah, that's so cool. I like that. That's funny because I, you know, as a student, you get asked to do surveys all the time for, yep. you know, how good's our program? What's this course like? And you just I'm only in it for the hundred dollar gift card, but I'll still yeah. give you, I'll still give you what I think. Like, um, so um, there is like a resistance to do surveys, and they come in the inbox. But I think if people are interested in the topic, they like to spend their time on it. Like, well, you know. I I like to do surveys that um, I get asked to do. Just often, it's a case of giving them feedback, saying question two is shit. <laughs> <laughs> you can't ask that. It makes no sense. It's double barreled. I kind of like doing them because, um, oh, I had it. I was going to say something, but then you made me laugh with the the shit comment. But that's funny. Um, oh, what was it? It was like, obviously, you get a chance to you know provide your opinion and stuff. Um, and I guess you know that's the standard reason why people would choose to do a survey. But I'll I'll have to try and remember it. And I'll get back to you. And so with the with the sorry, what were you going to say? I was just, I was going to comment that a well-designed survey should not be difficult and painful and arduous. A a well-designed survey should be really quick, really interesting, give you a chance to give you your opinion and get out. You know, people that just kind of, I mean, people that sign up to these survey companies that that want to do, you know, get money from doing surveys, hats off to them. We use them a lot uh, in our research at BeHeavyWorks, but this is this is why my pet peeve with a poorly designed survey because if you if you're pulling your hair out answering survey questions, it's a terrible survey. Yeah. <laughs> Some pointers for the listeners. I think that's good when they're <laughs> filling out or creating a survey. That's great. And so, we did kind of touch on, I guess, you know, what's next. It's kind of a big question mark with the multi potentialite, mm. um, I guess, approach. You did mention having a bit of a bucket list with the PhD. Is there anything else on the bucket list that's close to um, to fruition or that you'd like to do next? Not really. I'm kind of just scratching around in a hole at the moment waiting for the next inspiration. Mm. I did I did have a conversation with a, a couple of hearing impaired, impaired people yesterday and thought, oh, maybe I could learn Auslan. So... Maybe. I don't know. Check in with me in 12 months. And it's funny that you say digging in a hole because I know you literally you before you came in here, you're in the backyard. And you're yes. like, maybe you're searching for the next thing in the ground. Like, <laughs> I need to put my hands back in the dirt because that's where I get my inspiration. <laughs> that's awesome. And with the um, with the psychedelic stuff as well, obviously like the next step is like survey out. The next step with your PhD paper is getting that published. Um, with your environmental work in, in the water stuff, is that what level is that at? 
that's pretty much finished. That report's due this week, mm. and then I'm got a tender to write for the next project. So it's it's kind of nice being in, in behavior works, getting exposed to a lot of different stages, a little a lot of different parts of the research process. So mm. writing tenders right through to writing reports, doing stats, surveys. You know, there's a real diversity of work. It's quite interesting. It's definitely it's on. My, I've got a little Trello board of what places I would like to work or apply to at the end of my PhD, or you know, keeping options open as they come across the three and a half years. And Behaviour Works is on there from mm-hmm. having Denise as my supervisor, but also I've met Mark and um, obviously meeting you now, and I've met another lady there. And it's just like it's a very you get exposed to like you know, it's like problem solving really. Yeah. It's like and it might not be food waste, but it could be something to do. Um, you know, with the environment or or health, and it's like, well, I have that background, and it's more so you get addicted to like, let's let's win, like let's 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 change this, uh, like I get I'll get this outcome for this client or whatever it is, like it's um, it's really cool. I think it's outcome based work. You know, it's not necessarily just the next part of the story. It's very much about solving problems. Mm. So someone, someone will come, an organisation will come to us and say, I, I want to know about this particular issue or I want to change this behaviour and it's about solving that problem. So all the work we do is so applied, so mm. real world. Um, you may or may not get a publication out of it, so you know, keep the academic kind of credentials ticking over. But for me, the fascinating part of it is the, is the real world stuff. Mm. People mm. want to fix a problem, so they come and say, help us fix it. Yeah, yeah, and if you like, you said I think you know the, and it changes, you know, and it's it's trying to change. I guess that it, it might take a hundred years to change, like the academic profile and and the prestige compared to like the actual outcomes. Like you can write a report just for behaviour works and it will go in an, an archive, but that report's created change for the client, and that's the most important part compared to not being cited. And so it doesn't matter if it hasn't been cited because we've got the change. We've got the change, like. Everyone's stoked, and then from a business point of view, if they run it like a business, you know, you get more people recommending behavior works. It's like, well, mm. that will solve your problem. Like, so, mm. um, it's great, and it's so so lucky that we're part of part of Monash because we've got the academic kind of backing and, and kudos, I guess, of, of being you know that academic rigor. Um, but the approach is very much consultancy. So. Mm you know, let's put this out in the real world and, and solve these real world issues. It's a nice kind of sitting on the fence, I guess, between those two domains. Yeah. Multi-potentiate. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'd like you to tell us uh, one of your favourite papers of yours and then something that for li- the listeners to read. Uh, and that can be an academic paper or it uh, usually is, but, you know, a book or anything as well. Um, so just two things there. My, I've already described my favourite paper, the one that's actually just been published or just accepted to publication that hasn't actually hit the airwaves yet, um, the Concepts of Nature paper. So that idea of um, what comes to mind when you think about nature. And I'm talking about where to next. Uh, really want to try and do some more research in this space because I think it's a, a very under kind of researched area. So mm. understanding these different ideas about what nature is and how that relates to, I suspect it's going to relate to different behaviours people may be more or less likely to look after certain parts of nature if they've got an idea of what nature is. Mm. So that was probably the paper that I was most proud of. Mm. Something to read. Um, One of the most interesting books I've read in recent months was um, Dark Emu. 
I'm gonna blank on what is the author. Um, I got, got Google here, it's all right. <laughs> um, looking at uh, Bruce Pascoe. That's it, you got it. It'll work. Give that, figure out. Very much looking at all of the evidence that showed the way that the different Aboriginal cultures existed before colonisation, before white people arrived. Aquaculture, horticulture, you know, growing things, harvesting things, storing things. There's this kind of perception that we have, and I can even remember when I was learning about Indigenous history in high school, this, this warped kind of perception of hunter-gatherers. And Bruce's book was fascinating in showing all of the evidence of, of how they did settle, they did build little townships, they did, um, you know, harvest grain and, and um, fascinating ways that they, they set up these aquaculture systems of, of to trap and collect fish and eels um, by moving kind of rocks around and stuff. So absolutely fascinating book. And is he, um, is he an elder or something or is he mm, like mm. a... He's from down Gippsland Way. I'm not sure what his background is, um, who his mob is, but um, but he lives down Gippsland and he's actually doing some work now where he's harvesting um, Indigenous grains, grasses and grains and harvesting it, uh, trying to see if we can turn them into flour to make bread on a kind of mass scale. Yeah, wow. Mm. It's a ma- like it's, you know, from me learning when I was at, what, back in school, we didn't learn about... You know, my my Australian history was the gold rush. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's none of this stuff ever come up. And you, you know that we had an Aboriginal flag and that was kind of it. And yeah. then, you know, obviously, I think, maybe Sorry Day, whatever that was, I was on my way to school and that was on the radio. And yeah. then from, you know, then onwards, it's been more prevalent and more prevalent with, you know, even, you know, Indigenous openings at any webinar or people's yeah. understanding of, you know, using the right language or even at sporting events now, it's like it's a big thing. Um mm. So it's, you know, it will not, takeover is not the right word, but it's something that is being blended into, you know, white people culture quick, quick, quicker or, you know, more yeah. awareness, I guess, which is nice to see. I don't know what the school curriculum's like these days, but, but certainly when I was going through school in the 1990s, um, the, the education that we got in Indigenous cultures was terrible, shameful. So the same, you know, we learnt about the gold rush, we learnt about Burke and Wills instead of, you know, who are the people that were here for 60,000 years before us. Mm. Um, and it's starting to, you're right, it's starting to become a lot more prominent and people are finally accepting that Indigenous wisdom needs to be listened to. Mm. And you look at what happened with the Black Summer fires and they're starting to finally say, actually, we need to look at cultural burning because it stops things like Black Summer happening. Um, but it's not happening anywhere near fast enough. Mm. Indigenous knowledge um, is not happening anywhere near fast enough. Although that said, um, the IPBES, the Intergovernmental Panel of Biodiversity, the kind of um, biodiversity equivalent of of the Climate Change Paris Agreement, uh, they have uh, started to um, include a lot of Indigenous wisdom in the biodiversity conservation strategies, not just in Australia but across the world because we know that areas that are looked after by Indigenous people are looked after a hell of a lot better than us Westerners. Than our urban parks, unfortunately. Than our urban parks who just rape and pillage nature, yeah. yeah. Uh, instead of actually looking after it, because you look after it, it'll get back to you, you know? That's right. So, yeah. 
It's like, but you know, you, you're looking after your tree and now it's giving you shade. <laughs> oh, yeah. For shade that you don't want. <laughs> but it comes back to that idea of respect, you know. I mean, you, you treat the natural world in a respectful way and you understand systems and processes and you, you work with nature as opposed to trying to dominate or take from. You live in harmony with nature. This is this is something that, that we as white Westerners have just only starting to get our head around. I, I like to think of lots of metaphors and this is like very simple but I just thought I just moved into a new apartment and I'm like I don't move into the you know a hundred dwelling city and try to dominate it and change all the processes I, I move in and I work with everything that's already here because it's a it's its own little functioning society because there's a hundred people or you know more than a hundred people in buildings or whatever and this is how things are done and like why why try it walk in and stamp all over it like a very simple um metaphor or analogy but you've said it a lot better than i have well and that's the interesting thing when you look at the white history in australia um coming out thinking that they'd found the this promised land um planted all of the wrong things brought these hard-footed animals that completely destroyed the earth all of these mass extinctions of, of species and and destruction of what was once a, a beautiful ecosystem of, of living together and only now, two hundred and something odd years later, they're starting to actually no, maybe we didn't do that right. <laughs> maybe we should be living the, listening to the people that we hear beforehand. <laughs> My very last question, Melissa. Mm-hmm. How was your beverage out of ten? Oh, look, it got a bit cold there in the end because I was having a conversation when I first just started. It was about a seven or eight. The last mouthful was about a two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, I'm pretty weak on hot on hot beverages, so I made mine at like three thirty, and I was yep. like, I'll let it I'll let it brew, and then I'll be able to sip it. But it was, and I just keep my tea bag in, so it was very strong. Um, so I'll cold? probably go around six or seven too, because now it's four o'clock. It's been in this cup for ninety minutes, and it's not really a tea anymore. <laughs> it's just <laughs> kind of black water. Um, so, but no, it was it was good. I I think I'm. Happy to say I enjoyed the conversation more. It was def- the conversation was an 11 and the tea was 7, but that's okay. So Excellent. That's how, how it goes some days. I um, agree. <laughs> I really appreciate your time this afternoon, Melissa. It's been really nice um, to finally get to sit down and do this. And To finish off, as always, thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it as this is a passion of mine. Don't forget to leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And please share this episode on your social media or tell a friend to continue spreading the message of the Cooks community. You can sign up to our weekly email by clicking the link in the description of this episode and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook at the Cooks community. Until next time, remember to breathe.